This is Bonjour Hi, the title redacted by Sensitivity Reader Edition. I'm Avi Fangold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we are talking about the proposed rewrites of children's literature, Roald Dahl in specific, with author Joanne Levy. Is this rewriting of history, or is this just a smart business move? Plus, all the usual nachos and more coming right up. Phoebe, before we get into other stuff, I want to remind people of the great Canadian Seder. If you're so inclined and you still want to participate, send us an email at bonjour at thecjn.ca. Let us know. It was a lot of fun last year. We're inviting select listeners to take part and uh, go ahead and uh, send us an email. Let us know if you have a part, if you have a story about the Seder. Uh, We want to hear it. We want to have fun with it. Uh, So that's bonjour at thecjn.ca to be part of the great Canadian Seder. Plus, um, I want everybody to know uh, that we We've started releasing some longer interviews as bonus episodes for subscribers only. Subscribing is free. You just have to head over to Apple, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you go to listen to podcasts. The entire feed will come, including these bonus episodes. The first one we have up uh, came out last week. It's an interview I did with Moshe Bain of the Orthodox Union. It was most enlightening. It had a few fireworks in it. I urge you to subscribe so you can check it out and hear what we have coming up in the future as well. Phoebe. What else has been happening with you? Well, I read a book. Um, I read an entire book. Yeah. So mm. I wrote a book review essay for Unheard about a book that I really, really enjoyed um, by the British feminist Victoria Smith. The book is called Hags, and it's about um, how it goes for middle-aged women in society today. And she's writing about women a bit older than I am, but, you know, it, it's all, it comes eventually for us all if we're lucky. Um And yeah, it was a super interesting book about um, all the different ways, like the Karen phenomenon, sort of the women who supposedly demand to speak to the manager, um, all sorts of things like that. It, It was very interesting. Is there was there a Jewish angle to it or nope. no? Not really. No, that's okay. It's <laughs> I'm important. Jewish and I read think. it and wrote about it. <laughs> I'm I just mean, curious, think, trying to figure out: okay. are there Jewish women that have more sensitivities to certain middle agehood or being Karens, being called Karens, being called hags? Oh, we, sure. we can't call people sure. hags anymore, can we? Well, I mean, maybe it's being reclaimed. I mean, so I will say, yes, there there are actually some Jewish angles. I, I was just um, exaggerating the absence of a Jewish angle. There's always a Jewish angle, of course, of course. So um, in Hags, Victoria Smith um, quotes David Bedil, the British comedian um, and author of Jews Don't Count, and sort of makes an analogy between sort of middle-aged women being a group of people who um, it's sort of societally socially acceptable to bash and jews similarly um perhaps falling into that category so So i thought that was by the rules of intersectionality if you are a feminist you should be pro-jewish as well i mean that's i don't know if the women's march would (laughs) would take that tack but sure Um, yes logic this is rational it's logic it (laughs) is logic um I would. So what I will say, though, is that where it's all going to really come together is in my nachas. So just a little placeholder for that, Ooh, where okay. these two things Let's relate. So just, you know, a little teaser. Yeah. Um, so what I about you? What have you been reading? I came across, I've been reading a lot of still magazines and stuff. I was at, uh, when I was in Toronto, I discovered a magazine store. Did you know this? Uh, that there's a magazine store that exists that just sells magazines. It's incredible. Which is great news. And not just like, you know, Time and Newsweek and, you know, McLean's and National Geographic and all of that. It's just like the high end. I've, I've 
it's unbelievable the magazines now like have a base price of like 50 60 dollars in these high-end magazine shops so i didn't mm. buy a lot but i bought some and i was going through just regular magazines i went through uh, new york magazine had a big piece about michael steinhardt which uh, piqued my curiosity it's not a new story but they really told the whole story about his like um, I don't know, his uh, thieving of antiques, uh, antiquities, I should say, not even antiques. When you get really old, they become antiquities. Um, <laughs> did he have to Marie, did, sorry, did he have to con Marie his antiquity collection? It sounds like the exact opposite. Like there are like antiquities and the, you know, and crammed into cabinetry above cabinets in the bathrooms. Um, this was a man who really loved his antiquities, couldn't get enough of them, kept buying them, kept bypassing uh, legitimate sources for them. And um, the, you know, and started cramming them into his home. Um, the skull that was seen in the real... Okay, so my favorite detail from this article, because you, you sent me the article and I was looking at it before and I just saw that there was something where a, some some very ancient skull was seen in a like a real estate um re- photo yeah of yeah, his. yeah yeah so it, like it was yeah there was a lot of skullduggery involving this um my, my fascinating angle to this was that like michael steinhardt is best known within the jewish community especially over the past 25 years as being one of the founders of birthright um in addition to yes um allegations of sexual impropriety um being a avowed atheist um but also decided at some point in the late 90s um judaism is stagnating calls up his friend charles bronfman and says let's donate a whole pile of money and send jewish youth to israel because that's going to solve you know our problems um so, so did he did he want birthright to be something where the young Jewish young people are you know he could have like doubled up and had them looking digging for antiquities they, they were his mules like bringing stuff back it could so that's been. the interesting thing been. is that i didn't notice anything specifically in his collections of anything jewish meaning he probably had some mm-hmm. jewish antiquities but it seemed like there was an entire glossing over of that point and so it seemed like he just cared about all antiquities and not just jewish ones mm-hmm. um all which... antiquities matter all antiquities. Um, I, I found that fascinating um, because people like that tend to like, oh, yes, I have a special, you know, focus on Jewish antiquities. Maybe it was there and New York Magazine just didn't report it. Um, but he seemed to not care about that. But the thing that rubbed me the wrong way about this as a story is like, rather than just, yes, yet another billionaire with yet another form of impropriety was like, you know, first of all, so he described himself as an atheist. I found this quote of his where he says, he says, what I'm trying to do is to reinforce a sense of peoplehood among secular non-Orthodox Jews who be- who I believe are in danger of disappearing without something that binds them together. To me, a proud secular Jew is one who knows our history, who understands our people's heroism over many generations, who feels a powerful sense of peoplehood, including a sense of responsibility and care for other Jews around the world, and who embraces the underlying joy that a strong Jewish connection gives us. None of that requires a belief in God. Right. But apparently you you can care about history and still want to hoard antiquities and prevent other people from seeing them or having them. And I found that to be really, really shocking. And I wasn't sure if you had thoughts or ideas about that. Yes. Although maybe from a slightly (laughs) different angle. And again, coming back to the Marie Kondo thing. But I was thinking about like the way in the article, um, Michael Steinhardt talks about just having like this addiction to getting the stuff and how how sort of class coded what what's considered hoarding is versus collecting where you know if somebody is just like collecting a lot of old you know garbage people are throwing out that looks you know when people i don't know if this happens so much in montreal maybe it's too cold there but in toronto people are constantly getting rid of old you know furniture toys books whatever 
on in the front in their front yards and other people take this stuff in and i have i've been a giver i've been giver and receiver in this but if somebody brings a lot of that stuff into their house to past a certain point they're a hoarder but if you're michael steinhardt and it it's extremely expensive and rare and controversial you know then you're a collector hmm What's the hoarder yeah. and what's the collector? Well, I think that what he, he was basically picking up everybody else's trash. It just was sitting around for several thousand years before he picked it up. And I, maybe that's so his So it wasn't from Ikea. It wasn't from Ikea. He's like, I was, I was reading the Craigslist listings from 4,000 years ago, and this platter was there. <laughs> and I just was like, okay, free. I'm going to go for it. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I feel like... Regard if would it would it have made a difference if he had put it in a museum for you know his friends to see for public to see for you know with the fact that he was keeping it private or just leaving it all over his house? Uh, I'm not so cared about the hoarder piece as much as I am like okay these there are not many of these things and they deserve to be out you know in the world sure. and the manner in which those things happen are uh, you know it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think it would definitely, being in a museum is different from being in somebody's house, but then that's still, like, things in museums get, like, I know, is the word repatriated, whatever you would say, you know, returned yeah, to the Yeah, so there owners. are that stories about that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm okay with that happening, and I'm okay with that, like, you know, being a part of the story, and I'm glad that this is, you know, there, but I'm sure that for every Michael Steinhardt, there are thousands of people that have much smaller collections of artifacts and of antiquities that belong in you know somewhere that is publicly accessible meaning in a museum or at a university uh but available to be studied and researched and there are people that bypass all of those chains and just collect antiquities that are of importance and value and end up in private homes Um, i wonder if they even know like i think that what's different here is that this seems to have been done with his knowledge whereas i think Somebody, if if they inherited something that could be very significant, they may not even know. And then they go on the Antiques Roadshow and they find out. That might be something, but it's very different when do pe- when people do know about it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you know, more more Jews doing bad stuff. Um, that's that's kind of where we're at this time. Um, let's get on to non-Jews doing bad stuff. Uh, our interview about Roald Dahl and rewriting history with author Joanne Levy right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Over the past week, uh, news broke that the novels of Roald Dahl were being rewritten to fit a more modern sensibility and remove some language that was deemed to be offensive. These changes at the behest of the Roald Dahl Story Company and Puffin, the book's publishers, were done in conjunction with an organization called Inclusive Minds, which is, according to their website, an organization that works with children's book worlds to support them in authentic representation, primarily by connecting those in the industry with those who have lived experience of any or multiple facets of diversity. 
What led us to talk about this today was the obvious point that you can't really rewrite actual history, especially the fact, for example, that Dahl himself was a self-proclaimed anti-Semite, and perhaps this entire enterprise smacks a little of covering up small misdeeds while leaving many others to sit front and center. So to get to the core of what to make of all of this, we reached out to Joanne Levy. Joanne Levy is an award-winning author and our resident children's literature expert. Joanne, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. So great to be here. So um, can you start by telling us about this phenomenon, which uh, many of our listeners may not even be aware of, uh, something called sensitivity readers, uh, and when this idea started, where it came from? Um, well, I can't, I can't tell you when it started. Um, it is, has been a recent thing in um, the last few years where people will get sensitivity readers to look over their manuscripts, um, hopefully pre-published, to make sure that um, they get details correct, that the things that they may say are not unintentionally offensive, um, or just get details wrong. Um, for example, I've used sensitivity readers for my books about Jewish practice that's beyond my knowledge, um, just to make sure I got things right. So a lot of people, if they're writing characters that aren't um, from their lived experience, they will engage sensitivity readers to just to make sure they get details right. Um, so I just wonder, like the enterprise of writing fiction is inherently you're getting one voice and no one person has had all experiences. And it's I think there's something with sensitivity readers where on the one hand, I totally get um, I'm a nonfiction writer myself, not fiction, but um I get the desire to get details right and certainly not to upset people, certainly needlessly upset people. But at the same time, isn't fiction like you're, you're always going to be getting you're never going to get everybody's perspective in the world. And what's the downside of just saying I'm one person, I'm telling a story. It's inherently going to have, you know, blind spots because what could what whose story wouldn't um, and just leaving it at that and asking readers to just be sort of more accepting of the fact that you're hearing from only one person. Sure. And I think that's why it's uh, a controversial practice and how far do you go? Um, you don't necessarily want to sanitize your words and your books. I think it's, at least in my experience, it's so you don't get something unintentionally wrong because you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I come mm. at it from. And I think there is a danger in over sanitizing fiction because you're afraid of people um, being offended by something. I think you just as an author, you just need to do your best job to make sure you got it right. And it's not about not offending somebody. Mm -hmm. It's about just getting it. I right. just had one sort of follow up question about that, which is two people of the exact same demographics with the same, you know, level of religiosity, the same ethnicity, whatever it is, might disagree. So how does sensitivity reading approach this? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> Thank you. So, for example, when I when I used maybe not a sensitivity reader, but more of a fact checker, when I used my dad, um, who runs a funeral home, to fact check my book, Sorry for Your Loss, which is set in a Jewish funeral home, um, there are regional differences in practices. And I aligned with what he does and what I know is, is kosher and what they do in their funeral home. But I put a note in the back saying, these things are regional. 
Um, your funeral home may not do it the same as mine. I accept that, and it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe that's not exactly the answer you were no, looking that, for. That makes but sense. I, so that you're getting that it's been sort of somebody has looked at it, but still with that, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. So. You know, the the book you bring up, Sorry for Your Loss, which was a great book, and we spoke about it on uh, Bonjour Chai a little over a year ago. We uh, had our first book month, uh, I guess, last November, not this past, but the one before. Um, it's, as you said, it's a middle grade uh, novel, takes place in a funeral home. There's a kid whose parents are funeral directors, and there's um, the person has a friend. It used to be that when you were writing something like this, it wasn't called a sensitivity reader necessarily. It was research, right? You're doing the research and you're also writing what you know. So if you have a lived experience of this is what Judaism looks like for me, you're not expected to write differently than than that. Um, I think that what people seem to be pushing back with sensitivity readership is where somebody goes and says, well, I'm going to write a book about an indigenous experience, but I'm, you know, a white writer from Toronto. Well, maybe you shouldn't be writing that novel to begin with. Right. That's my initial sense is you don't know. And if you need a sensitivity reader to tune you into certain basic facts about a culture that you don't really know, maybe you shouldn't be, you know, talking oh. about that. So, oh, I'm going to have so to please jump in. I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm trying to figure I this out. I, I think that this idea that you should only be able to write no, fiction about I'm people. Saying, your, I'm saying either that okay. or do your research. Okay. Right. Say I've lived with sure. it. I've spoken to people. I've had hundreds sure. of hours with somebody. So as I said, sure. it's either research or write what you know. And both of those together come together for an author to write a novel, right? Or to do something. So, so here's um, a great example of, of somebody that it wasn't their lived experience, but a, a author friend of mine wrote a book. It's called Fierce. And it's all about um, women um, in the past, who Canadian women who um, I'm not even sure what I want to say, but they they were standouts in whatever they did, and a lot of them were indigenous um, from different areas of the country. And so, what the author did was she went around and got a whole bunch of sensitivity readers from the different indigenous communities to make sure that she got the details correct. But she wanted to tell these many stories in in a book about um, Canadian history. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have that lived experience. And she also fictionalized some of the stories where um, there was a lot of gaps. So she tried to sort of fill in what their lives might have been like. Um, but she definitely did her research. And part of that was having the sensitivity readers look over and make sure that she got um, the details so right can I just could. I just had a, a way of sort of jumping out to that might sort of get us to actually the Roald Dahl topic a little bit, which is that... In the past, you know, not to generalize, but the past, this was not the approach of fiction writers, which is why, so my background is in um, 19th century uh, French history and specifically French Jewish history. And I read a lot of texts where, you know, there's representations of the Jew. And this is not coming from an author's lived experience let al- or, or research. And it's truly like some figment of their imagination. It's a trope, whatever, you know, and they're talking about you know, whoever, it, whichever writer, Balzac, whoever is talking about the Jew, and there's no pretense that this is getting at something um, realistic. And then this ends up being either offensive or just sort of confusing when actual human beings who are Jewish pick up this literature. So I think it's Im- interesting to sort of look at where this idea comes from, because it, it was not always the case that people thought you had to know everything about a person to write that 
point of view. You know, I think that's new. And I think even somebody like me, who's a little skeptical of maybe sensitivity reading in certain respects, I think about what there was in the past. um, And I can understand why there would be a desire to do it differently from that. Yeah. And and I think that there's there's so many um, anti-Semitic tropes that are so baked into um, our modern life that a lot of people don't even recognize them. So I th- I think that it it it's worth mentioning that um, those things could probably use to be left out of literature. Um, but I will say that in this instance, I I don't agree with what they've done. So I, I if I if I can just before we get to that that situation to talk about this contemporary right still where we're pre uh, you know press right before the book gets published, um, what is the po- part where you see authors really start chafing at this idea of sensitivity reading? Because what you're saying like it makes perfect sense to me to do your research to make sure that your facts are straight uh, always has been, I think, a hallmark of publishing, of of authorship. Um, But it seems that there are a lot of authors that push back against this idea of sensitivity readership. Where where does that come from? What's the place where it goes off the rails before we get to Roald Dahl? Well, because it's such a gray area, and if somebody tells you you can't tell a story because you haven't lived it, um, I think people chafe at that because good writers are going to do their research and they're going to tell a story properly. If, If somebody tells... A story well and does their research I don't care who wrote it um, and I like to think that readers don't care who wrote it if they tell the story properly and do their research um, I mean Stephen King probably hasn't killed anybody Stephen King you know oh, I don't the things know. that happen <laughs> I've read a well, lot of his books <laughs> they seem really well researched no, well I'm but it's not his lived experience yes. of actually killing people so I mean I'm I'm you know stretching there but still I mean if all you write is what you know in your lived experience sitting in your home you're not going to get very far with your writing. Everybody thinks differently about it. Some people really chafe at it. Some people are like, oh, well, you can, you know, I will do more research than I might have done because I don't want to offend anybody and I want to make sure. And it, 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 it's really a spectrum, I think, of how people feel about it. Well, I was just wondering in terms of research, I think there would be another approach in fiction, which is that the narrator is not somebody who knows everything, you know, is not an omniscient narrator, whatever, however you want to talk about this in literary terms. But, you know, what if you, like, it seems possible to me that you could write fiction not doing research and also not claiming that you know um, all about a lived experience you don't have precisely because of who the story is told by. For sure. And most of my books are told in first person and through the eyes of an 11 or 12 year old. So of course, their lived experience is their own lived experience. So Mm -hmm. I think you have a bit more latitude in that respect. Um, But I I still think you need to, uh, the people that they experience in their world, you need to be very clear what you're, um, what you're trying to do with your book and make sure that you don't go outside the realm of what is the story you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And just sorry, one one final question on this. Um, would you say there's a difference between sensitivity reading and just fact checking? Like what if it were just called fact checking? I think there is a difference. Um, fact checking is literally checking facts and making sure that stuff is correct. Sensitivity reading, I think goes a bit further as far as 
um, cultural aspects and and practices, things like that, that may be um, considered incorrect culturally. Or, but or, but what I think what you're, if I may, if I can interpret and tell me if I'm wrong, the hesitancy that I'm hearing there is that it's not necessarily fact based. Sometimes sensitivity reader or or editing, it's it's an individual's opinion of what might be offensive, and that that person's opinion of what might be sensitive actually might be very important to somebody else. Right. Absolutely. And that's where you get into the gray area where the author has to decide, okay, is that worth taking out or refining or changing? Or am I willing to possibly offend somebody because it's on the end of a spectrum? Yeah. Do authors often reject the sensitivity readers suggestions? I can't say for sure. um, But I I think if they do, they should do it for good reason. And there are good reasons to reject it. Um, not And sensitivity reads are opinions. They're, that's why they're not fact checks. <laughs> so I think you do get into, like I said, that gray area of, of do you accept it? Are you willing to take the risk? Um, or is it just pointing out something that you didn't see? And sorry, just one more thing about sensitivity readers, and then Avi, I promise I'll stop. That's that I okay. Find this subject so fascinating. You're taking um, all the questions out think, of my mouth. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. it's all um, good. We'll see if this one was one you had in mind. But I guess one one other sort of like big picture question is about the publishing industry. And I guess sometimes it seems potentially that people are getting work as sensitivity readers who have sort of specific perspectives, or maybe. It should be that they're telling their own stories and not being like higher. And that's what this is wouldn't come up so much with like Jewish sensitivity readers, I would think, but like maybe indigenous, maybe black. I don't know where like it might be that the publishing industry would sort of inadvertently perhaps tokenize people and sort of send them down the kind of sensitivity reading track and not down the sort of editor or author track. Yeah, absolutely. And I th- and I think that maybe that was a bigger fear a few years ago, but I think a lot of publishers are um, becoming a little more sensitive, <laughs> if I can use the word, um, to letting people tell their own stories. And I think a lot of especially Canadian publishers are making spaces for people, um, for Indigenous writers and BIPOC authors, and to have their own spaces to tell their stories. I mean, some sensitivity readers are are not going to be writers. Right, of course. Um, so one doesn't necessarily equate into another. Um, but I think there are spaces for people to tell their stories. You know, uh, you're, when what you're bringing actually um, brings up an entire different discussion. And if I can sidebar here just to, to bring it up, but we can maybe deal with this another time. Like within various publishing companies, there is sometimes mo- uh, moments where you get into sensitivity readers and and this idea to like need to censor within from within a publishing group. I, I have been doing a lot of research for a story that has yet to be done uh, f- by us or by the Canadian Jewish News on uh, PJ Library. We'd, we'd been looking at PJ Library and talking about it, and I'd, spoke, I'd spoken to librarians, I spoke to authors, I spoke to other people in the publishing industry, and, you know, I was hearing stuff where PJ Library was asking authors to remove things from books. Now, I'm not going to ask you, you are in the Jewish um, book world, um, but this is a form of sensitivity readership which can go into a dangerous path because, for the you know, on the one hand, if, if you know, PJ Library gets to um, say that we don't want this in our books, 
right? Because this is too much, uh, you know, on this is going to offend some areas of our, our readership, you end up offending people on the other side because why aren't these stories or ideas in the books, right? If you don't have LGBT characters in a book because PJ Library goes and says, well, that might not be something that we want to deal with, um, then there's many Jews who are saying, I get PJ Library, I want to see LGBT re- representation in Jewish books, and PJ Library's, you know, cutting that out. And that's where I see this type of discussion about sensitivity, you know, coming up against a wall where somebody's sensitivity is somebody else's, like I said, fact, which we said before. So I would jump in there and say, um, for one thing, I know PJ is actively looking for LGBTQ books. Um, so I, I, I was just giving I, an example. I know. I, know, I just May don't want to go somebody else. there. Yeah. Um, but I will say that curation and censorship are different things. Um, so while I think PJ is looking to curate a list of certain books that they know their readership will like and appreciate and be approved by a wide audience, I don't think that's necessarily censorship. Um, Because while they may say, please take that out of your book, the author can say, no, it's staying in, and maybe it doesn't get into their program. So it's not, I wouldn't call it censorship as much as curation. So what's interesting is that that leads directly finally into our role doll, you know, (laughs) discussion is one is that you're pointing out that this is before versus after a book is published, and that there's a big difference with that. And then uh, the idea of curation versus censorship, right? What happens to a book when the author is no longer around even to decide to rewrite or to re-edit or whatnot. And we go and say, well, these words or these ideas or these images are no longer uh, worthy of being read by children and we have to cut them out. Absolutely. And and I do think um, there's also a difference between, like you said, an author who's still around to be able to change their words and somebody where it's their estate or whoever owns their, the rights to their books who's doing it. So, for example, Judy Bloom actually changed um, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret in 1998 and updated it. Um, I'll spare you the details. Oh, but no, I think the I'm, details are interesting. It has, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating now. I'm like, wait. On did this Twitter, somebody... did she convert to Islam? And it's now, are you <laughs> no, there? No, no. Allah, it's me, it Margaret. It has to do with, with how the pad stays put, I believe. Exactly. I don't think that that's so too, I when... think we can, you know, we're, we're you know, all we're 12 adults. and up or whatever the age would be. I don't know. Um, when, when I first read the book, um, way back when, it had the maxi pads with the, the belt, which even even back then I had no experience with because it was it was out of date then, um, and then they updated it in 1998 to take it out. And I only noticed it when I started writing middle grade books. And of course, I wanted to go back to the the gold standard mm-hmm. of middle grade books. Um, and I'm like, I am sure that there used to be belts. <laughs> and and I actually researched it yeah. and found out that they had changed it. So that's. That's an example of updating a book to um, conform with the times and be more relevant. And and they actually updated Judy Bloom's books with new covers that are more modern as well that people were in an uproar with. So, but that's not not censorship. But I think when when an author is gone and doesn't have the ability to say yes or no, I I think that is censorship. And and you know as 
vile a person as Roald Dahl might have been, it's his right and it's his words. And, and I don't agree with what they've well, done. So this is something that I, I wrote about this for the CJN website this week, um, where I was thinking through kind of all the various nuances of this, like how old is the child? Is the work assigned? Is it just suggested? All of these different, you know, levels. But also I'm just thinking about like, this is partly about being fair to a, a deceased author. But it's also partly about not being overly generous to somebody who is no longer with us, who maybe was hateful and hateful even for their own time. I think that's an important distinction between somebody being a product of their time and somebody being like if you I mean, he apparently said per the New York Times article I was reading about about this in 1990. He called himself an anti-Semite. 1990. Not that long ago. Not that ambiguous. So there's something about like a retroactive sort of rewriting of history where an author comes across as more sensitive than they were that I feel is like, as as I wrote, that it's both like too generous to the author and not generous enough perhaps to readers. And I think people get caught up in the nostalgia of the books that they read as kids and have to drag them into the present for their own kids. But I just don't, I don't think that's necessary, especially if it means you have to rewrite it for a modern audience. There are so many other great books that you can hand to your kids that sort of have the same feel, the same whimsy, and that kids can enjoy without having to support that past and, and having to change it. Um, so it's it's a lot of different levels that, that I think it's problematic. Are there, are there moments where you think um, it would make sense to rewrite something after an author has passed, like where something is like genuinely, you know, hateful or, or do we say that, no, that's, that's a part of what we need to learn. And that's how you grow up is you read something, it's not so appropriate. And you, uh, you ask a parent, what is what's going on here or a teacher? And they say, this was a part of uh, history where people when, you know, thought like this, and we moved on. Yeah. And and a lot of people have brought up the point that they should stay as they are so that it can be a teachable moment that parents can talk to their kids about it. But where I come from, it's it's <laughs> nine times out of 10, the parents are just handing the kid the book and there's no discussion about it. So if you want to do it in school and academia where a teacher is saying, this is why this book isn't great, that's one thing. But just handing a kid a book that you know, that is problematic, I think we can do better. Well, I think we can curate. Better. I think it depends a lot here on age, right? Because I think there's something like I see something a little sinister and also, um, but also just more to the point kind of, I don't know how to put this, like, there's a, there's a danger in only showing children books starting in whatever your problematicness supposedly ended. Um, and I don't know, was it 2018, 2020, whatever it is, you know, and I say this as somebody with young children, and we do read a lot of new books for children, also um, older books for children, but there's like, the world did not start five minutes ago. And I think there's a little bit of a narcissism, like a generational or sort of like a presentism or something of thinking that we in this moment have everything right. And that everybody in the past didn't. And I mean, I am more personally into sitcoms, very into sitcoms. And I, I sometimes will watch like the Mary Tyler Moore show and think, wow, this is a lot more feminist than something you would see from the last like 20 years. So I think there's something to be like the idea that you could only hand a child who can read on their own, you know, a book from the last few years seems like that also is 
like presents its own set of problems potentially. I don't know. What do you think? I, I want to add even just another layer to that, which is that times change and things move um, often, especially today, faster than we think. And what is offensive today, which wasn't offensive 20 years ago, becomes can easily become in 20 years from now inoffensive again. You know, I, I, the example I'm thinking of is the um, within the examples that they gave with uh, the Roald Dahl rewritings, one of the uh, they were pulling out the word fat right? Because it's offensive to some people. But um, we see a lot of people that are moving towards uh, say, embracing that term and saying, this mm -hmm. is a physical descriptor, and I'm happy with it. So why would you take this word fat out only to have to put it back in in 20 years to say, we don't say extremely large, we say fat, because that's just what people are. Yeah. And, and language does have its ebbs and flows for sure and and i think if there is that context where people are reading with kids to talk about why things are problematic i think any book is fair game honestly um but i think if you're just handing a kid a book are you telling pleasure, wait a second are you telling everybody that we should read mein kampf with our children just to explain to them what's <laughs> do we have to every single episode talk about where my high school my high school was literally selling it on the street in New York at a book sale. We're going to have to do that anecdote every time. It, this was happening in New York City a few years well, ago. Well, and, and I'm talking about middle I don't middle want to interrupt. Because yes. that's, that's, that's my... It's my, always um, about mine, Kyle. My people. But um, I think if, there's, if there is context, I think everything is, is fair game if, if somebody is given context. But like I said, if you're just handing a kid something to read on the beach... Um, and you don't want to have those conversations because the thing is when the, when you have stuff that's really problematic like that and say here it's mom approved or dad approved or whatever, um, you you can be normalizing that stuff. I guess, but are there books that aren't problematic? Does that exist? Because I feel like everything could offend somebody. Like, I think I, I don't want to be too sort of like test case. Obviously, not every book is Mein Kampf, you know, but like. I don't know. I just I'm trying to picture. I, I just feel like there's a certain kind of like middle ground where books are challenging and thought provoking, but you know, well, yeah, I don't know. I'll add another layer to make it even sharper. I think that you sometimes will say that here's a book that reflects our family's values and is perfect. And here, read it as mom approved or dad approved. And a kid grows up and reads it and reads this entire corpus of books that this kid gets all the time and is perfectly fine but they grow up realizing that they only got one point of view their entire life and they resent not having a second you know point of view to uh to open them up to other ideas but what and is so that you, what sort of what book would that even be like i'm just trying to picture what would be a book what, that to, would, to, yeah. it's basically i'm saying that every book becomes mm -hmm. problematic because even a book that sure. is perfectly fine sure. does not expose you to you know some other mm -hmm. idea which you may have wanted mm -hmm. to know about mm -hmm. well and i think that's where education comes in a lot and where we read problematic books in schools and there is that context of why these are problematic or this is what it was like at a time that we've come past or you know that sort of but thing is there Giving a non-problematic the book does that exist sorry for your loss except for yours <laughs> present in, company always excluded yeah. yes <laughs> although again i could imagine in several decades from now where life becomes this like really long-term we figured out how to solve for, we solved for death right and this book sorry for your loss which was an award-winning book and everybody used to read it to understand stuff well we don't read that anymore because we don't want our kids to know about death because it's a thing that happened in the past 
Ooh, deep. Right? That's deep. That's deep. We can. <laughs> I can see myself finding any problem with a book in the future because we'll always can posit that something can happen and uh, it changes the the context yeah, of the book. I mean, I guess I just question this idea of problematic books and also just more broadly of assuming that a book being from a different time, like I'm thinking of, because we're, you know, doing a lot with um, Dreyfus Affair and Zola lately, um, behind the scenes, I'm just thinking a lot about like a, a writer who was extremely ahead of his time and really a fighter for justice and all of this, was st- he was not using the term BIPOC, right? You know what I mean? Like, I I think that there's, I, I guess I would say that this is something where people who are experts and are adults and know about um, the context beyond even like what most adults would know, need to say, okay, like certain books are just from a different time. And that's useful and educational and helpful for children to realize that our moment isn't the only one, whereas others were offensive for their own time are genuinely upsetting and, yeah, shouldn't just be handed to a child for treating. I don't know if any of that um, makes sense. Yeah, and, and the thing is, we're always, I think we're always trying to do better. Um, I know for myself, there are words that I don't use anymore in my kids' books. And it's not a matter of me censoring my shel- myself as much as just finding a better word. Um, and just not having certain words in my in my vocabulary anymore so i'm trying I'm to do better to know which words but i, I don't know oh yeah. th- things like lame okay um yeah. crazy just just things like that that may be just unnecessary would you would you put those into the words of a into the mouth of a narrator or a speaker if the book was set in a time when these types of things were actually said i might i might not um you see where I'm, I haven't, where I'm getting with this? Yeah, like, no, for sure. Why is would you, historically accurate? If you were writing a book for the 1920s, nobody would put in a, a, the N-word, right, listed, right, as a character saying this anymore. We, we, we say that this is verboten, and yet um, that's the way people spoke back then. If I was writing for adults, I'd probably say, yes, I would, and I would make it historically accurate. If I'm writing for kids, I tend to be a little more nuanced. Interesting. And that's really like at the core of what this whole discussion is, because we tend to want to protect children and say, oh, we're going to give them extra sensitivity. We want to censor um, and we want to make sure that, you know, they're growing up and we're going to give them these ideas in a way um, that they're able to absorb them when we probably can, you know, let assume more of them and, and they probably are better readers than we ever think that they will be. But that's my kids opinion. Kids are smart. Yeah. yeah, kids are smart. Kids get it. And and I think the core of all of it is context um, and giving kids context and allowing kids to talk about it. And if if it makes them uncomfortable, let's talk about why it makes you uncomfortable. Uh, I So then to wrap it up here, what do you think um, should happen in cases of books that are genuinely problematic, um, but that are intended for young readers? Um, how do we and whose authors have passed on? Um, how do you think we should be approaching these types of uh, republishing of literature? I think if the if the author has passed on, I don't think you should touch them. But that doesn't mean we have to hand them to kids either. We can let them go out of print and find something better. You don't. I I had been thinking about like the possibility of putting in footnotes or an afterword that leaves it alone that says this word 
in this context makes sense for when it was being written. Um, here's some discussion points to think about it. But nowadays, we don't talk about this. You don't think the handholding along that way is, is useful or interesting? I, you know what, I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I guess you could, but I just don't. I would want to publish I Roald Dahl. I mean, I wouldn't want to because I think that, like I said, he's a twit to use one of his own words. Uh, um, but if people want to read it, great. But make sure you put in an afterword that talks about, you know, this was his language. This is what he used. This is who he was. And uh, see it as you see fit. But I don't know if that's really the publisher's responsibility to do that either. That kind of... It seems less problematic to do that than to rewrite the books themselves. Oh, I agree. I don't think rewriting it is the answer. But I, I think it's it's worth mentioning, too, that his whole... I think it's his whole catalog is now owned by Netflix. So I, I don't think that they're sanitizing these books for any reason other than to make more money off them. Um, so it's not really their sense to... Uh, better the literature as much as make sell more it books. okay yeah to sanitize it to sell more books okay that's my take anyway <laughs> that's usually that's usually the secret answer behind most things joanne levy is the author of sorry for your loss amongst other uh, great novels for middle grade readers uh, sorry for your loss has just won the canadian jewish literary award uh, and has been a finalist for the governor general's award joanne levy thanks for coming on bonjour hi you're welcome back anytime thank you so much this was so much fun to listen to you thank you great conversation i appreciate it and now it's time on the show for our nachos of the week phoebe what's your nachos this week yes yeah, so we were talking about jews doing bad stuff non-jews doing bad stuff now i'm going to talk about a jew doing good stuff um so i as you all know subscribe to britbox canada and watch a lot of old British sitcoms. And the latest that they've added is one called My Family that started in the year 2000 and apparently ran for 10 seasons. I had never seen this before. And I'm completely hooked. I'm hoarding it like it was an antiquity. And um, its star is the actress Zoe Wanamaker, whose Wikipedia I immediately went to because I recognized her from among others Poirot. Um, but she... Let me get to the part about her early life and education. Okay, Zoe Wanamaker was born in New York City on May on 13th of May uh, 1949, the daughter of Canadian actress and radio performer Charlotte Holland, an American actor and film, whatever, So, and uh, Sam Wanamaker, who was born Samuel Wattenmacher. Her father was of Ukrainian Jewish descent, although she had a secular and, and non-observant upbringing. Apparently, Charlotte Holland, the Canadian, also Jewish. Whoa! So we have a little bit of Canadian Jewish lore here um, in this sitcom. Now, the reason this is all going to, the, the, the way this is all going to come together with um, that book Hags is she plays on the sitcom, Zoe Wanamaker plays on the sitcom, Susan Harper, not an explicitly Jewish character, at least not as per the first season plus one episode of season two, but she's very much like the kind of spends too much, somewhat nagging middle-aged wife trope. And I'm wondering, is there something where, like, a Jewish woman would be more likely to be cast in such a role? Hmm. I don't know. I think that there's perhaps something to that. In a an entirely secular, you know, default sort of secular Christian sitcom. Yes, because we've never asked this question on Bonjour High. Sh who should be playing roles of Jews and non-Jews and... Uh... You know, in the arts, let's say uh, we're going to that's never been come up before. No. Let's uh, bracket that now. <laughs> but I did think there was something about like the sort of the type that she plays where it's something seemed like 
like she's the Jewish mother. Like she's very, you know, intense with her children, even though um, I don't think she's supposed to be. I don't think the character is supposed to be Jewish. But I just wondered if that entered into the casting on some subliminal level. Um, I'll never like know. George, but... She's like George Costanza's mom. Uh, well... Not Jewish, but clearly trying <laughs> to play type, up these A different yes, Jewish yes, mother type, it. definitely. Um, it's all good. A more recognizable one for somebody of my generation, maybe. But yeah. It's all so, good. But it's, it's a very engaging sitcom that's um, kind, of, kind of funny and has some pretty good of that moment fashions for those who like that sort of thing. So that's my Nachas. All um, ten seasons, maybe. All ten seasons. My, <laughs> I, um, I am going to uh, very simply call out a wonderful experience I had uh, last Saturday evening into Saturday night. I did Havdalah for uh, students at Hillel at the Hillel House on Stanley Street for Hillel McGill, Hill Concordia, various students. Um, I had a wonderful time. Um, we had some of these students uh, on in the past talking about Hillel and where it's gone and where it's coming from and where it's going and the directions. Um, but it was a wonderful time. I taught, I did some teaching about the Torah, uh, Torah portion of the week. We had some uh, snacks and uh, going out on Shabbat in this way is always a fun, wonderful experience uh, to do. So a shout out to Sudash Lishit and Havdalah at Hill House um, and all the people that I met there that listened to the show. Um, so yeah, yay them. Excellent. Thank you for listening to Moshe Chai for the week ending February 25th, Shabbat Parashat Terumah. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Moshe Chai. It's one of the best ways that we get new listeners and as always you can email us with comments or ideas at bonjour at the cjn.ca i'm avi feingold i'm phoebe maltz